Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. On this episode, we talk to the director and star of an engaging film called Duty Free. Duty Free is a fascinating and very personal documentary about a man who sets out to take his 75-year-old mom on an epic quest to fulfill her bucket list. Director Jean-Pierre Regis's mother, Rebecca, was 75 years old when she was fired without cause from her lifelong job as a hotel housekeeper. That's when Sean decided to take her on a bucket list adventure to reclaim her life. As she struggles to find work, he documents a journey that uncovers the economic insecurity shaping not only her future, but that of an entire generation. Duty Free examines ageism, the care crisis, and economic insecurity in America. Here's the trailer. This is my mom, Rebecca. Hello. She raised me and my brother in a tiny apartment. To make ends meet, my mom spent 50 years as a hotel housekeeper, and she always assumed she'd have a job. Smile. When I went to college, she cast out her savings to put me through school. And all of a sudden, her story took a turn. I just got fired. They want me up. I've seen it happen with other people in my age group. Her story was more universal than we could have ever imagined. There's no reason anybody's gonna hire somebody that's 75 years of age. I want you to write out a list of all the things you could never do, kind of like a bucket list, and I want to do them. I couldn't get my mom a job, but what I could do was tell her story. Mom, you are on the homepage of USA Today. Hello from Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka. (laughs) India, China, Argentina, reaching out, understanding the story. One of the great joys of being a mother is to see love come out in simple ways. 77! You have one chance at life. For God's sake, live it the way that makes you comfortable. Let's see your best hip hop move. (laughs) It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. This is your life. Duty Free will be shown on PBS's independent lens beginning on November 22nd. Check your local listings for exact time. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with friends. And now on to my conversation with the director and the star of Duty Free. Hello and welcome to Making Media Now to Jean-Pierre Regis and Rebecca. Nice to see you. It's a pleasure to be speaking with both of you today. Sean is the director of a fantastic documentary called Duty Free. And Rebecca is the star and the subject matter of that film. So, Sean, I'm going to turn to you first and ask you to kind of give us the um, the quick and easy uh, summation, the synopsis of your film. 
Sure. Uh, my elevator pitch is <laughs> my mom was working at a hotel um, and has been in the housekeeping industry for her entire life. And she was fired at age 75 for really just being too old. And so we went on a bucket list journey to do everything she could never do while she was working. But she cashed out her 401k for me to go to college. Uh, so she needed a job desperately um, and found it really, really difficult to get back on her feet. Um, everything was on LinkedIn. You're emailing your resume. You're not handing it in now. So the culture totally shifted. So the film, which will be on PBS on November 22nd is really about, um, you know, my mom living her best life, a love between a mom and a son, but ask what we're going to do with a generation of older people who don't have enough money to get them through retirement age. That was fantastic. Super succinct and very comprehensive. You hit, you hit all of the nails on the head. We could probably wrap it up now. (laughs) (laughs) My PR team would be proud. (laughs) No, we're not going to do that at all. And the, you know, the film has been, uh, uh, justifiably lauded uh, in the press. There was a, um, a review uh, from P- uh, CBS News calling it a tender love poem from a son to a mother. And the Hollywood Reporter described it as warm, personal and socially relevant. And it's actually really tough to make a film that hits that sort of hits all of that because, you know, it's a obviously a very personal film, uh, but it is a super relevant um, story about somebody essentially being told we have no use for you anymore. And, you know, someone who is Rebecca in your case, uh, just bursting with spirit and life and energy. So I would like you to just kind of take us back if you would, what were the circumstances that allowed you to raise your two sons, Rebecca, um, in the setting in which you did? Because if I understand correctly, uh, there was a bit of a quid pro quo with the hotel that you were employed by. They provided for a period of years, at least, um, an apartment uh, in which you raised your, your two sons as a single mother. Well, when I first went to move into the apartment, when he was probably not even a year old, I was paying. I was paying full rent. I was working at a thousand-room hotel. I had a good job, and I had four big hotels in the city, four years each. And the building in which I was living, which was a nonprofit building, um, asked me would I help them put together a hotel. And, and I, so I did, I came, I worked both jobs, one job, room by room, got staff, got everything to oversaw the renovation. We opened the hotel to glowing reviews. And then I, they asked me, would I take the job of director of director of housekeeping? I said, well, I can't because I can't afford to pay you $2,500 a month rent on the salary that you're offering. I wouldn't be able to do it. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. We'll offer you the salary and you can live, you can live rent free. Okay. So it worked out. It was the same money, essentially. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, and this, don't worry, Rebecca, it will be an investment for you. Ten years in, the final day. Oh, Rebecca, we love you dearly, and we know what a wonderful job you've done. as such a valuable employee, but today, dear, I'm sorry, today's your last day. And at that <laughs> time, you were 75 years old? Yes, Okay. 75 years old, they offered her two weeks pay and told her she needed to leave the apartment in a year. And what was the relationship at the time between, so you referenced the nonprofit, that was the YWCA. 
Yes. And, and, and this is in this is on Boylston Street in Boston. And and what was the 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 hotel? Was that nonprofit or was that a private company that was in partnership with the YWCA? The hotel was the basically what happened was the YWCA was a nonprofit and they turned the real estate, the building into a for profit. And okay. so they so that they could reap revenue from a hotel. It was a business model where they were trying to make money to siphon it back to YWCA, the, the nonprofit. Okay. So they made the hotel and then, um, you know, hired a management company to run, the hotel. to run the hotel. And then when they fired my mom, the YWCA was full and well knew what was happening um, and sort of turned their head to uh, the fact that they were getting rid of a woman who had lived in their building for 40 years, raised two children in their building and worked and opened a hotel um, for them. Mm-hmm. So, Rebecca, as you were coming up to turning 75, did you have an idea in your mind about retiring at some point? I always thought that the day I left that building, I would be in my box. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I can think, I can walk, I can, I'm in great health. There's nothing, you know, I mean, I walk, they registered 14 miles a day on my pedometer and I put at work. Mm-hmm. I mean, up the stairs, down the stairs, whatever. I, I'm not, a lot of people, they get older and, and they do have illness and things, but I was not one of those people. Right. I kept going. I was working seven days a week on call 24 hours a day. Right. I knew something was going wrong. I knew something was not right. They'd asked me for... The, you know, the handbook I put together and different systems that I had and and they were in not being invited to meetings and stuff. I had a, a woman's intuition, as it were, an employee intuition. Something wasn't right. I was totally unprepared. So you were in a position where you were actually not just performing your job, but you were actually managing a staff. Is that correct? I was and- director of operations. Director of operations. That, that, yes. that, that, that's amazing. Sean, what was your knowledge of how vulnerable or precarious your mom's employment situation was? Not aware enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, as a young person, you're sort of on your own track. I mean, you know, I'll speak for myself. I was hustling in New York City, trying to make a career for myself, um, you know, and obviously uh, understood that, you know, we came from not much, right? That we were, you know, raised in a middle class household. You know, there weren't, you know, you know, resources available, but, you know, I, th- I thought much like my mom did that she would work until she died. Um, and much like I think a lot of older people do. And so we never had the conversation about how much money she had in her bank account left. You know, what is our plan for retirement? Like we really never just talked about it. And, you know, as we've put this film out, we've realized that, you know, we're not alone, right? A a lot of families don't have this conversation. Um, We're not really clued in with our parents' finances. And so when she was tired and you see in the film that she had $600 left in her bank account, I was working from a place of, uh, fear, stress, um, and all of those things, which, you know, we were able to handle it, but for so many other people, um, you know, they're, they're not in a position that we're in to a make a film and B survive. Right. And compounding the, the fear and the stress, Rebecca, that you suddenly had to encounter is the fact that you have another son. So, uh, tell our listeners about the challenges that both you and he face. Uh, the, I do have a, another son. His, his name is Gabriel, and um, he is a chronic 
schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. Currently off his meds, and um, uh, it, it, very difficult. And he also lives in the building in an affordable house, and he pays his own rent. Quite, you know, he moved out of my apartment into his own apartment in the building right through this system. And um, it's very expensive. You know, he gets disability, but it costs $700 more a month than I'm getting for him just to basically have all his needs met. Right. Yeah. That, 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 That point that you make, Sean, about it, it often being a subject that's not talked about, um, it sometimes feels like there, there's so many emotions at play. Uh, when it comes to that topic that both for the parents and for the children, there's there's some degree of fear. There's sometimes a degree of shame. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, a parent who has sacrificed and worked for decades and, and more, you know, to put the best interests of their children first. Then they feel like, oh, my gosh, I, I haven't been a world class money manager. And yeah. And all around you, it seems as if everybody else has. But when you start to peel away at that onion, you realize that there is, as your film points out, something like 25 million Americans who self-identify essentially as not being prepared for retirement as they as they approach that age. Right. There's, uh, you know, there are studies out there that say, you know, some 40 percent of Americans don't have, you know, six hundred dollars to, you know, hold them over for a rainy day. And so everybody, you know, so many folks are walking on a tightrope, yet not enough people are a talking about it and b there are not enough narratives, films, uh, books, et cetera, that really are are given space to talk about that massive middle of people who are just struggling to get by uh, in this country every day and the, fa- and, and the families that they're supporting. And your film is really interesting in, in, in that it really threads the needle between calling attention to these facts, but the film is far from, you know, a polemic. It's this beautiful personal story. How in your mind, and I I do want to inform our listeners that, you know, Sean works in the media. He has worked his way into uh, numerous um, successful positions in the media, working with um, uh, uh, CNN and uh, HLN, uh, MTV, uh, etc. How did you, as both a son and a filmmaker decide to take the approach that you did take? Gosh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think my initial reaction um, to making the film, when it wasn't really a film, it was to really to start recording my mom telling me what was happening at work, right? So it was a reaction to how I felt she was being mistreated on the job or something was off. Um, And then, you know, as I, you know, kind of really dug deep in myself as a filmmaker and a storyteller to kind of really understand what this story was about. We were on a bucket list adventure. You know, I wanted to pull my mom away from her job to show her what life looked like outside of a hotel, um, which is really uh, all she knew in some ways. Um, uh, And, and I realized that the, the story is a family story. This was a story about love and about advocacy and about caring. Um, it wasn't so much a film about, you know, taking the why or the organization, um, the management company to task for what happened. This was a film that allowed us to heal 
through a journey that not many people get to take. Um, and I got to ask my mom every single question I could ever want to ask her in this life. Um, and sort of just forging a more powerful connection with her, um, through her, her lived experience and, and sort of new experiences. But it took a while to get there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Rebecca, tell me about what your first response was uh, to Sean's idea. Well, he said, Mom, he said, um, I'm not. Well, make a list of all the things. I know you've been working. Make a list of all the things you couldn't do because you were working. My first reaction, and who's going to pay for it? <laughs> A very pragmatic question. <laughs> I mean, all the things I wanted to do. Cost money. Cost money. Yeah. And then, but he gently persuaded me, just write them down. And I did. Simple things like milking a cow or um, and serious things like, you know, going and reuniting with my daughter and. Yeah, they yeah. really do. Your your bucket list really runs the gamut from milking a cow <laughs> to to skydiving in Hawaii, okay, to taking a hip hop class, and yes, as you say, reuniting with your daughter from a you know from a previous relationship. So it you know it, it the endeavors were not certainly not at all just lighthearted and kind of fun, but there were ones that really um, excavated uh, your past as an individual and as a, as a family. Which of those types of experiences were, were the most um, uh, frightening or, or, you know, the, the, the most challenging to, to actually go through with? One of the most memorable ones, of course, was visiting my sister's grave. Mm-hmm. But I would say the jumping out of an airplane, having seen his face as he exited prior to me, <laughs> was not one I wish to repeat. And as I'm coming down with this, and I've told this story a million times, there's an aerialist who was my was on my back. Yep. I said, sir, me, a planner, sir, I know you're an aerialist, but I just want you to know I'm all for the straight down method. He said, Rebecca, he said, we didn't like anybody telling you how to do your job. I said, no, sir. He said, I don't like anybody telling me how to <laughs> yeah. And as I'm going out the plane, he's up and down and around and he's doing all these jumps and everything. And all that's going through my mind is, warning, as you sign this paper, it may result in injury or even death. <laughs> sign it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and how old were you when you were skydiving? Were you 77, 78? 77, 77, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 70, 77. I mean, yeah. yeah, 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 remarkable. So, how tell me about your comfort level before we're you're jumping out of planes and milking cows and taking hip hop classes. Just tell me about your comfort level about essentially having your story told and 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 showing yourself on on film in such a uh, a personal and transparent way. Well, when he first started filming, I mean, he didn't have a camera, but we didn't have the money. He's filming me. He's recording me on his cell phone. Right. Do you think any woman my age is going to go and stand in front of millions of other women with no makeup on, putting makeup on, talking about <laughs> highlighting my... <laughs> Yeah, there's one beautiful sequence where you're up at around dawn, and it might be the day you go um, uh, skydiving. And, and Sean points out that uh, your hair looks fine. Your hair looks fine. Don't worry about your hair. And you come back and say something like, you always have to worry about your hair. Yeah, My hair always had to... 
The my hair mom, always matters. Yes. My mom's presentation has always been so important to her. Um, and in I think hotel, it, in a hotel, a, and I think for a lot of also like older women in particular, like, you know, going out was an event. Like right. it, anytime you went out on the streets, it was an event and you wanted to look. And so she has that sort of like old world, um, sort of charm about getting ready and looking perfect. Um, and, and always in a uniform, like that was something that kind of, I think came across in the film is that my mom was, you know, work defined her so much that she couldn't ever go anywhere in looking a way that wasn't pristine. I always had to look at the guest called three o'clock in the morning. Oh, I left my lost and found there. I think it was two months ago now. This is when dad's calling. Um, do you think you can check and see if we still have it? And there I am. I'm ready dressed. I'm lying. I'm ready. Right. <laughs> There's a drunk in the lobby. Somebody's locked out the room. I'm always ready to go and greet the guests. Just like, I just get in there. So you get this real Rebecca in this film. (laughs) Absolutely. and, And there is something about, there's something empowering about feeling proud of your appearance. And, and I, I, I don't think that, I think that that, that feeling is impervious to age. Yes. You know, which and that definitely comes through in your film, just your, your, your spirit. Uh, you know, obviously this is a podcast, so people can't see you, but when they watch the movie, they will see you. Your spirit is just, it's so lively. It's just, it's like there's there's a phrase um, that I read once describing somebody as being lit from within. Mm. And that, that most definitely applies to you, Rebecca. I agree. I mean, I, you know, I never realized as a son, and this is what I am impressed upon my friends is like, you know, try and get to know your, your mom, you know, if you can, if you have that, like that ability, like create space for her, because I always knew my mom was special, but it wasn't until putting out this film that I realized, yes, to your point, like, like that she is lived from within. I mean, audiences from around the country are moved by her in a way that like, I could never see, but I only, I see it now. Um, and, And I think it also just quickly underlines the point that like uh, of this film, which is that there are a lot of older people that are like my mom and are lit from within. I always say, you know, older people are, you know, curious and malleable and bright and all the ways that culture doesn't often allow them to be or say Mm -hmm. they are. Um, And so it's just exciting for me that the film has gotten so much attention with a 75 year old, every woman that is lit from within like my mom, because she's not the only one. And when you came up with the idea, uh, pretty much on the heels of coming up with the idea was the challenge of, right, of, okay, so how do I finance this? Yeah. So you, you, you started a, I, I can't remember if it was Kickstarter or GoFundMe, yeah. but in the first month you raised $60,000. What did that response tell you that you had tapped into? Wow. Well, yes, we raised $60,000 in a month, but also one of the clips from the film at the time um, to promote the Kickstarter went viral and was seen 38 million times on Facebook. And so um, that was for me um, an an insight into this massive community of people globally who have experienced ageism, who feel like their stories aren't being told. They would send in stories to us about their own experiences, either on the job or off or feeling discarded, et cetera, or about like wanting to have that relationship with their child. Or there was just a lot about this film that touched, you know, a human nerve. Um, Mm -hmm. 
And it was, I had to keep coming back to that moment of my first moment of virality to in the process of making the film to remind myself to keep going because there are so many times for a filmmaker where you're ready to give up. You know, there are so many barriers to actually getting a film out in the world, but I knew that we had a community of people that in some ways were relying on us, but rather like we knew we had an audience Mm -hmm. um, and that kept us going. And you have paired the uh, the making and the distribution uh, of the film with an impact campaign to shed light on topics that you were just speaking of, ageism in particular. I Right before we started this conversation, I just happened to be looking at Twitter, and I saw your, your tweets about your recent visit to uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, bring us up to speed on what happened there and what that was all about. Yeah, well, my mom got called to D.C. to meet with um, Representative uh, Sylvia Garcia, a congresswoman, the first Latinx congresswoman um, in the House, um, who is working to pass a bill um, called the Protect Older Job Applicants Bill. Um, and what that does would strengthen the ADA, ADEA, which um, is the Discrimination Against Age- Ageism mm-hmm. um, Act, um, at, to, to make it. Uh, work uh, for job applicants as well, because the ADEA is really only protects uh, employed, you know, employed people who are employed, not older people who are actually applying for the jobs. And in my mom's experience, and I would watch it and you see it in the film, it's like there were moments where, you know, she would scroll down to date last graduated high school and it would end at 1979, which is like an implicit way to say like, Old yeah. people do not apply. Um, right. Well, then, then the little X comes up, the little red light. You've missed a question. So I'm, th- I'm not worried. I'm going to get this job. I'm going to get this job. I've done all the things they're asking. Most hotels know around. You get to the end. Application incomplete. And the little red box. Date last finished high school. Hello. I went to college when I was 11. <laughs> I finished college when in 1958, they went on to Lisa Wyan in Brussels to get a bachelor's there. But because I don't, it was before 1979, it application incomplete. Yeah, well, that that points out that points out a uh, a system that really does put older people. And when I say older, I'm not talking. Right. I'm not talking about people in their 70s. Right. I'm, I'm right. talking about even people in their 50s. Right. Yes. Um, you know, you you spoke about and, and the film shows you applying online uh, to to a lot of positions. Uh, and Sean, you mentioned that when we first started talking. And as I'm sure you know, um, there's artificial intelligence that's built into these job application programs that are automatically scanning yes. exactly yes. for that information. So there are employees who know I can't ask this person how old they are, That's but right. I will uh, I will force it out of them, essentially. That's right. The irony of that always struck strikes me as, you know, we're, we're living in a time where in the aggregate, people are more vital and healthier and they're living longer than before. And and somebody determined at some arbitrary number. OK, we're all set with you. Yeah. Yeah. It, it took me watching my mom do this to realize how pervasive the problem is. Um, And, you know, to add on, it's like, you know, you have social media networks who now advertise for jobs on behalf of employers, but you can choose who you target. 
right? So if the employer is like, no, we only want somebody from 35 to 45 in, you know, Chicago, then that's, those are the only people that are going to see it. And it's wrong. I mean, it's, it's absolutely wrong, but as a young person, everything is catered to me, right? Like every, the world is catered to me uh, at this point. Um, and in, we often don't pull ourselves out of our own lane. And so it took me filming my mom's struggles for me to realize that like, wow, not only is this messed up, but also like, why are we self-harming our future selves? Like I'm going to get old in no time. And, you know, like if I'm not acting to dismantle what's happening around us, like I'm going to be screwed too. Right. That's my response to all those people who say, you know, we only want the young ones. New brooms may sweep clean. The old brooms know all the corners. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. And 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 Sean, what's ironic also is that, you know, you work in an industry that is particularly guilty, I would have to say, of just just being infatuated with youth mm-hmm. infatuated with youth as a demographic audience as a consumer audience um and yet you know you make out the very uh um real point that no generation is impervious to aging everyone is going to get old and and it's not as if 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 person demonstrates that they still have uh, a contribution to make which Rebe- rebecca you do you know, many, many times over, um, the arbitrary number just seems to be a loss, not only for the individual, but for society at large. Yeah. We talk about in, you know, the media, when we're, we're you know, reviewing audience numbers, we call the 18 to 49 demo, the key demo. Right. Uh, and you know, just by way of calling it the key demo, we make it very clear who we're interested in reaching. Um, and you know, with this film, I always say that like my mom, either the data speaks for itself. If we want to talk about data, it's like, not only were, did, were we able to sell out the IFC as an independent film? Not only were we a number one Apple news story, you know, like we, like we sold out our, we were the number one top grossing ticket at doc NYC here in New York city for our film festival. We've proven time and time again that a 75 year old woman can star and sell tickets. And yet when you go to any streaming site, you're hard pressed to find narratives, true narratives of people that look like my mom, that act like my mom, that are the modern representation of what my mom is. And so it is a call out to Hollywood to say like, it's not enough to show, you know, these sort of old perspectives on what age and aging looks like. We have too many people in America, 10,000 people turn 65 plus every day. Like that's too much of an audience to ignore. So true. Absolutely. So true. Even if the even if the media was sort of practicing a bit of enlightened self-interest, because when you look at uh, the buying power, of, of certain demographics. It's not in that 18 right, to 34 right, year old. Right, They're still right. living in their parents' basement in many right. cases. And, right. you know, it, it, it is the older one. Um, I'm curious uh, where things stand with the bucket list. It seems to be growing exponentially. Am I wrong? <laughs> <laughs> <That was bad. laughs> you just came back from the Caribbean. Am I yeah. correct? Well, yes, that was not originally on our bucket list. That just happened to come with PBS, who were kind enough to have a show this on their voyage, on their maiden voyage. The burdens of celebrity. 
Uh, yeah, right. New bucket lists are being opened up to us every day. But you know, when we started making this movie, COVID was nowhere on the horizon. We didn't sure. know about COVID. Now, right. the story is relevant now because so many of my co-workers or people who work for me, they've lost their jobs through COVID. And they're only, and many of them immigrants that don't speak English that are not, you know, that great as me, not on the computer. Yeah. They're getting jobs. It's a very serious situation when you yeah. see when, when I was watching the film, uh, I, and, and particularly uh, because of the nature of the work that you did in the hospitality industry, it made me start thinking about, as, as you recall, at the beginning of COVID, we heard all of all of this praise around what we referred to as essential workers. Mm-hmm. And in many instances, those essential workers, you know, about a week before COVID hit were kind of the invisible workers. Right. And and I'm wondering where what are your thoughts on are the essential workers still being thought of as essential or are they receding back into the into the shadows? You know, a lot of them have quit the hospitality industry because they're asked to do more. I mean, I I did get a job, as you see in the movie. Yes. For um, for four years, uh, even while doing this other stuff. But when they called me back from COVID, they, you know, I was told, well, you have the job, you're joining COVID. Well, you will be doing different duties. And it was more, a lot of managers have left because they're doing the housekeeping. The people are afraid. Girls are afraid to work. Yeah, and also hospitality, the workers, yeah. I think to, to answer your question, it's like the, they're being squeezed and yeah. uh, even more. And unfortunately, a lot of those line workers don't have a platform. Um, you know, hopefully a lot of them are supported by the unions, but, you know, you see that hotels are only cleaning rooms, you know, um, every three days now, you know, they don't need as many people. Um, but who's advocating to make sure all of those people get back the job that they've worked for so hard, um, Mm -hmm. on for 25 years. I mean, it's a very similar story to my mom's. Yeah. Well, you know, one does hope that um, the the type of information that you're sharing and the initiative uh, that you're getting behind in in working with the representative in D.C. Uh, and you know with all of the uh, in the Im- impact campaign component of your film that maybe it mirrors what happened about a hundred years ago or so where there was no such thing as social security. There was no such thing as, uh, you know, retirement benefits and so forth. And, you know, there, there have been other times in history where, um, the uh, older, older members of the population were deemed, uh, forgettable or dismissible. And, you know, we do learn lessons. Sometimes it takes a long time, but your, your film, uh, is such a great testament to that, uh, to, to the, uh, spirit of resilience and this bond between, between mother and son and, and really just not giving up. Um, and, and I think that probably applies Sean to just getting the film made, not giving up. Right. Exactly. Every filmmaker can understand the trials that it takes to get a film onto the world, but we're just so happy that it's here and that it will be on PBS and on independent lens and, um, that it'll get the eyes, um, that I think that it deserves that our culture deserves right now. I'm a lucky one. I got him. We want the whole country of hospitality workers who lose their jobs and that to have advocacy. And when they're trying to find another job, make it easy on the application process. 
Very well said. Well, I want to thank you both for your time. I want to thank you for this film. Uh, I will make sure that in the program notes for this particular podcast, we reiterate the the date that it will be on PBS uh, later in November. Um, and we'll link to your website so that uh, folks can see it around the country if that's, if that's still going to be an option to see it um, in theaters. Thank you so much. The film is called Duty Free. And uh, I appreciate you joining me on Making Media Now. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, Michael. Appreciate it. Great day.